Uh, how wonderful to welcome you to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas. Uh, I'm John Farthing, and from time to time, uh, the teaching team puts the mic in my hand, or on my ear, and I have an opportunity to uh, share with you some thoughts that God has placed on my heart uh, that might help us all in our journey toward seeing Him more clearly and loving Him more dearly and following Him more nearly. Welcome. We are here. God is here. God is speaking. And we are listening. All the people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, let us uh, focus our thoughts and still our hearts and uh, open our minds to what God is saying to us in our call to worship for today. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The just shall live by faith. For in Christ Jesus you are all God's children through faith. All things are possible to those who believe. Amen. Amen. The Apostle Thomas has suffered 2,000 years of bad press. We know how to characterize the apostles, several of them. Uh, Peter is rocky, I guess. Beloved is the word that describes John. He's called the beloved disciple. But we all know how to characterize the one disciple, Thomas, who missed out on the first appearances of the risen Lord to the disciples. You know what we call him. We call him Doubting Thomas. As if his demand for evidence makes him spiritually inferior to faithful Christians like us. Doubting Thomas. Shame on him. Of course, uh, faithful Christians like ourselves never have any doubts, do we? Is that true for you? Is that true for most Christians you know? Am I the only one here today who has ever, at least for a moment, wondered whether the things we claim to believe might be, as Sigmund Freud argued, only an illusion that helps us make, manage the insecurity of living in a threatening, unpredictable world? I wonder, does Christian faith mean never having any real questions? Or on the other hand, must we settle for a shallow, simplistic, naive faith that serves only as a security blanket where we can hide from uncertainty. 
Is there no place in the life of faith for honest doubt? Does faith mean having all the right answers to all the important questions? Or is faith perhaps more like daring to say, I really don't know, but I know the one who does, and I know that he is trustworthy, and I've decided to trust him, and I'm going to follow him regardless of my honest questions and nagging doubts. Maybe John's gospel includes the story of doubting Thomas to make the point that God never requires anyone to embrace a blind faith that sacrifices intellectual integrity and creates the deception that we're believers when the embarrassing truth often is that we're just unwilling to be honest with ourselves and honest to God. The story of doubting Thomas is an invitation to explore a kind of faith that demands unflinching intellectual honesty and the moral courage to be faithful even in moments of uncertainty and to dare follow Jesus even into the darkness. So listen carefully to what God is saying to us in our gospel reading for today. And not having brought the text with me, I will read, as you will, from the screen. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hand, and put my finger into the wounds from the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe it. Eight days later, the disciples were again together in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and examine my hands. Extend your hand and put it into my side. Do not continue in your unbelief, but believe. Thomas replied to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed me because you have seen me? Blessed are the people who have not seen me and yet have believed. For us today, my brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord, we're not playing church. We're not going through the motions. 
And we're certainly not just pretending. In all honesty, we come before you with our confidence and with our uncertainty, with our faith and with our doubts, with the whole of who we are as you know us to be. Speak to us now and somehow change us from the inside out for the living of a life that's radically faithful and radically honest to you, to the world, and to ourselves. Hear our prayer, O Lord. Incline your ear to us and grant us your peace. In the name of our risen Lord Jesus, amen. One of my favorite scenes in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland features an exchange between Alice and the White Queen. It's the scene in which the White Queen tells Alice how old she is. The White Queen says this, I'm just 101, five months and a day. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you? The Queen said in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a deep breath. Close your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you've never had much practice, the White Queen replied. When I was your age... I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Last year, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the outbreak of the Protestant Reformation. And while we were examining and reappropriating central themes from the teaching of the Protestant Reformers, one phrase that got a lot of attention was sola fide. We receive God's saving grace not by our own good works, but by faith alone. Sometimes I wonder, though, whether our understanding of faith might not be all too similar to the White Queen's idea. The idea that faith is about making ourselves believe things that in our heart of hearts we don't really, at least yet, believe. Down that path lies intellectual dishonesty and self-deception. Do we actually think that God wants us to pretend that we believe when, if truth be told, it's often the case that we just haven't gone to the trouble of struggling deeply with the real questions posed by the Christian faith so that one day perhaps this faith might become really our own? Do we think that faith means claiming a degree of confidence, a degree of certainty that we don't really have? 
Can't we at least be honest to ourselves and honest to God? Last week, when the teaching team met, Andrew Brewer noticed the title of this message, Honest to God, and he posed the question, do we really think we can be dishonest with God? As if he won't see right through our facade? Of course, Andrew's point is well taken. Obviously, we can't deceive God. But when we think we're pleasing God by claiming to believe when we really don't, when we've just not thought it through, when we've closed our eyes, when we've stuck our head in the sand like an ostrich, then it's clear that we are fooling someone. We're fooling ourselves as if our relationship with God depends on pretending to believe, claiming to believe certain things, even when deep in our hearts the jury is still out and we still haven't made up our minds. In the mid-1980s, a student at Hendricks College showed up at my office, knocked on the door, and said she needed to talk to me about some dilemmas she was facing, some decisions she had to make. I don't recall exactly what prompted it, but at some point in the conversation, I asked her, how does your faith fit into all this? Are you a believer? She seemed genuinely shocked at my question. Almost indignantly, she answered, well, of course I believe in God. Of course I'm a believer. For the last 30 years, I've been pondering her words. Can you really have faith as a matter of course? A few years later, I had the privilege of spending a sabbatical at the Belovosotsky Monastery in the city of Stupina, about 60 miles south of Moscow. Valery Tikhanov, a former Soviet diplomat in Nigeria, had become a special friend of mine when he came to Hendricks College as part of a cultural exchange program. And when it was time for me to go to Russia, Valery provided a lot of help with the logistics of getting me from Conway to Moscow and then down to Stupina. About halfway through my sabbatical, I left the monastery to spend a weekend with Valery and his family. Valery was fascinated at the thought that somebody with several university degrees could also be somebody who confessed faith in Jesus Christ. He'd never seen such a thing before. That opened up several hours of discussions about what it means in the modern scientific age to have faith in Christ. For as long as I have memory, I will not forget the moment when Valeri said to me, John, 
I wish I could have faith, but it's too late for me. Sixty years of Soviet atheism and anti-religious propaganda have shaped my heart and my consciousness. It's worked its way into my spiritual DNA. And it's too late for me to do anything about that. I wish I could believe, but I can't. It's just too late for me. And then he added, but I hope that someday my daughter will be a believer. I wondered then, and I still do, whether there might not be more authentic faith in those anguished words of a Russian father than in the cheap words of somebody who says, well, of course, I live in Christian America. Of course I believe. Doesn't everybody? It doesn't cost me anything after all. It's just my personal opinion on a topic about which I'm not all that serious anyway. Well, all of that came rushing back to me when John Ray asked me to help us all this morning make sense of the story of Doubting Thomas in our text from John 20. And I suppose it is in the spirit of Doubting Thomas, questioning Thomas, that I found myself sort of locked in on several questions. Could it be the doubts are not always signs of a lack of faith? Is it possible to have sincere doubts and still be loyal and, yes, faithful followers of Christ? Could it be, and I'm thinking of Valeri now, could it be that longing to believe is also a form of belief? What if it turns out that Christians are called to live not by sight, not by clarity, not by certainty, but by faith, as Paul said to the Corinthians. We walk not by sight, but by faith, which implies a willingness to stake your eternal destiny on something for which you do not have and cannot have absolute, logical, scientific, rational proof. In this life, at best, again quoting St. Paul, we see through a glass darkly. We see through a, 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 a foggy mist. Must we, in order to call ourselves Christians, pretend to a greater certainty than we really have? Who do we think we're fooling? Can't we at least be honest to God? We're set right with God by faith alone, not by works. But isn't there a danger that by insisting on certainty, by trying really hard 
to suppress honest doubts and to make ourselves believe six impossible things before breakfast, we might end up turning the act of faith itself into just another good work. Some of us try harder. We close our eyes and take a deep breath. And we're going to believe our six impossible things before breakfast if it kills us. And in that way, aren't we turning faith itself into a good work that we think we can offer to God in exchange for eternal life? And doesn't that shift our gaze away from God and back to ourselves? Doesn't that have the effect of turning our focus from what God has done and is doing for us back to what we think we can achieve for ourselves if we just try really, really hard? And doesn't that leave us still trapped in the web of self-centeredness and self-reliance from which real faith, honest faith, sets us free? You may know the old hymn that begins and ends by confessing to God, great is thy faithfulness. The title of the hymn is not great is my faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Because you see, it's not really in the end about me or my faith. It's about God and God's own faithfulness to us, even when our faith is not all that strong. Listen to the words of St. Paul to every doubting Thomas who may be with us here this morning. Even if we are faithless, God always remains faithful. That's just who he is. That's just what he does. Even our faith is God's gift, not our accomplishment. And throughout the Gospels, if you notice, real faith always leaves room for honest questions. Remember that John the Baptist in prison had some doubts of his own. That's why he sent the question to Jesus, are you the one that we've been looking for? Are you the one who was to come? Or ought we to start looking for somebody else? Remember, too, as Norma observed several weeks ago, it was Jesus himself who cried out, your question and my question, my God, why? And don't forget that it was doubting Thomas, of all people, who said to the other disciples in John 11, let's go back with him to Judea so that we may also die with him. How does that fit into our image of doubting Thomas? Hmm? For 2,000 years now, most Christians have remembered only one thing about Thomas, that he had some serious doubts and wouldn't believe it until he saw some hard evidence. But what if Thomas turns out to be a good guide for Christians like ourselves who often experience uncertainty, even about matters of faith? 
who often experience anxiety about whether we've got it right, who often experience uneasiness about some things that we have claimed to believe but aren't really, truth be told, completely sure about. Maybe Thomas can teach us something about a faith that's not naive, not shallow, not gullible, a faith that is rigorous and thoughtful, which is surely part of what the commandment means when we're told to love God, not just with all your heart and soul and strength, but also with all your mind. Thomas was not willing to believe everything he found on the World Wide Web. Thomas wasn't about to invest his life in something that amounted to mere hearsay. Thomas wasn't going to stifle his honest doubts and join the parade just so that he wouldn't look like a misfit. Isn't there something to be said for Thomas's way of looking at faith and looking at life and dealing with honest questions? At least he was honest to himself and honest to God. Doubting Thomas went on to become one of the apostolic witnesses to the resurrection. According to ancient tradition, Doubting Thomas took the gospel to India, where he had the privilege of dying a martyr's death for his risen Lord. Still today, at Mount St. Thomas in India, his witness and his confession, my Lord and my God, his witness and confession are celebrated by the spiritual heirs of St. Thomas in India. Maybe that example makes the point that the real issue here is not whether you have doubts, but what are you going to do with them? Did your questions about matters of faith lead you to walk away from Jesus just because you can't come up with all the right answers? Or is yours the kind of faith that lets you go on following, go on obeying, go on trusting, even when that means living with a lot of unanswered questions. Rather than looking down on Thomas as a spiritual weakling, I suggest that it makes more sense to regard him as both the model of an honest faith and the patron saint of all those who suffer the anguish of the dark night of the soul. If I were Roman Catholic, I might well cry out, St. Thomas, pray for us. John ends our text by saying that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Last Thursday afternoon at the Puritan Brew House, when John Ray and I were discussing what needed to be said at 2828 Crossover this morning, 
John Ray reminded me that the phrase, these things, that were written in order to help us have faith, these things include the story of Doubting Thomas. If Jesus didn't reproach Thomas for his doubts, if Thomas went on to become a great missionary and martyr, then how can, then, then, then perhaps we too can dare trust God even when we're living with some serious unanswered questions. If there's room for doubting Thomas in the fellowship of believers, then I guess there's room for you and me, even when we find ourselves crying out, Lord, I believe as best I can. I'm trying, Lord. Lord, I believe. Now, help my unbelief. Let me close then with a few choice words from the pen of C.S. Lewis. His little classic, The Screwtape Letters, takes the form of an imaginary correspondence between two citizens of the underworld. <laughs> an imaginary correspondence between Screwtape, an archdemon, and a junior demon named Wormwood about ways to lead people to hell. Now, Wormwood is just getting started. He, he, he's an apprentice demon. He's just learning the skills of the trade. But Screwtape has been at this for hundreds of thousands of years. He knows all the tricks. He's a master of deception. And he has lots of, of advice for his apprentice, Wormwood, about how to seduce a soul to damnation. And what I'm about to read, um, Screwtape's name for God is our enemy. Remember, this is being spoken from hell's perspective, okay? He calls God our enemy. And Screwtape knows full well that a Christian's honest doubts are a threat not to God's kingdom, but to Satan's. So here's what he says to Wormwood. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human being, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken but still obeys. I believe that for us today, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Amen.